Hello, I'm Wendy Liebman, CEO and Chief Shopper at WSL Strategic Retail, and this is Future Shop. This is where I talk to innovators and disruptors about the future of retail. Today, my guest is Brian Gildenberg. Speaking of disruptors, he is the Senior Vice President of Commerce for the Omnicom Commerce Group. It's a global consultancy that specializes in retail shopper and commerce marketing. Many of you will know Brian from his previous life as well, where he led global retail research for Kantar's retail practice. Welcome, Brian. It's great to be here, Wendy. Great to have you too. Before we get started, here's what you need to know about Brian. First, he has one of the biggest brains in the insights world, so I'm really envious about that. He's at least a foot taller than me, which doesn't bother me except when I'm changing light bulbs. He knows retailer and retailers from their loading docks to their digital front doors, and he talks more than I do, which is hard to imagine and why I will never present at a meeting after him. Oh, yes, but I dress better than he does. So for all those reasons, he is here today. Just jumping right in, Brian, late last year, you absolutely took my breath away when we were both at the Emerson Group Industry Day, and you said, we can't predict the future now that we are living in a time of wet cement. And I, of course, was outraged since we predict the future all the time at WSL. What did you really mean by that? I meant that your life's work is completely futile. No, of course I didn't mean that. <laughs> Let's get right into it. It's like one of those terrible ESPN shows. Wendy, and first of all, it's great to be here. And the exact inverse of everything you said, including the fact that your brain is way larger than mine on a lot of these topics. What I was saying was that the analogy to the wet cement world is I was addressing a concern that I've had with clients, which is that in their quest for certainty, they were irrationally drawing conclusions from things and then trying to build them to sort of operating plans. This is exactly what's going to happen in the future. That's the part that I think is really problematic. I mean, and you know, that's problematic at the best of times. I thought it was borderline irresponsible to do it now. So I think predicting the future is probably more important than ever. My objection to the mechanics of it wasn't so much about the predictions, it's what people do with them, and the degree of wrench tightness versus finger tightness on the plans they build off of those predictions. And I think I know you well enough to guess this, that you would always say that future planning is scenarios and contingencies and likelies, and and being nimble as you go into that is exactly the right thing to do. I think a lot of companies... And I think this is going to be really acutely true next year because the retailers are still doing really well this year. I don't think there's a chance that the retail industry is going to perform as well in 2023 as it is now. Just the numbers it's comping are going to eventually get impossible. And no one's going to think that problem through. And I think you're going to end up with people that are trying to achieve growth plans that are irrational or not built on any real firm foundation. And that's where you start to get into real problems is when you take an idea of the future, overemphasize your certainty about it, and then behave in kind of goofy ways. The other thing about the wet cement idea is that I do think you can certainly have a point of view on where we're going to end up in the quote new normal, right? But I don't think any one individual today has a really clear idea of exactly what their life is going to be like a year from now. What you're saying is absolutely true. I actually understood what you were saying at the time. I was just being controversial. I think the thing that struck me about what you said then and what you're saying now, it's this I think it's a fear. There's been so much disruption, to use an overused word, that people are just trying 
company's clients is trying really hard to kind of get a hold of something. And you're absolutely right. Instead of the what you want is the scenario planning, the flexibility, the really the facileness, if that's a word, that people need. There's this sort of, oh, come on, we can fix this right now. And that's really impacting the way they're thinking about the future and their planning. Well, and I think for big companies too, it's like that whole Kahneman system one versus system two thinking, and I can never remember which is which, right? But the one where you're using your conscious brain, there's a reason we don't do that all the time. It's exhausting. And big companies are a lot like people in that respect. I think, and the bigger the company, the more the tendency is to want to get back to system two corporate thinking, which is I want to behave unconsciously. I want to do pattern recognition. I want to be able to autopilot a lot of stuff. And the problem is the last two years have been deep system one. Uh, Brian Cornell said this at RF, and I thought it was a really profound observation on his part. And he goes, look, all of the agility, all of the adaptability, and all the flexibility that we've needed over the last two years, we still need. We're going to need that this year. We're going to need it next year. We're still trying to figure out exactly where all this ends up. So now we got that out of the way. What's the biggest surprise you've had coming out of retail over the last two years, for good or for bad? Is there something that just like... Never thought about that or, wow, that's fabulous? I would say a couple of things. I think the retailer's ability to respond to the sheer and unadulterated chaos of the last 24 months. And by the way, you're entering into a pricing environment right now, which is going to be as chaotic for a different part of the retailer's world over the next probably six to nine months as inflation works its way through our system as well. But I think the retailer's ability to pivot their business models into something deeply unknown and remain more or less highly functional was really admirable. I think some people have been surprised by the resilience of brick and mortar retail. And if you look at e-marketers forecast around the world, brick and mortar retail this year is going to grow by more in dollar terms than e-commerce will. That wasn't surprising to me. I think that was surprising to a lot of people. I think the other side of that, but from a shopper's point of view, was I remember fairly early on, maybe six months in, as we talk to shoppers on a national level, the number of people, and it was 55%, I think, who said they were proud of how they were coping. They were proud of how they were managing. And from a shopper side of things, it was really extraordinary when the world, sort of the underpinning of that routine of what I do as a shopper and what I expect from my retailers all went haywire. And that was quite reassuring to me. On the other hand, it said to me, as we've moved through this, and as you talked about e-commerce and you talked about stores, the amount of places people can now shop and have chosen to shop when they didn't, whether they were 80-year-old somethings or 20-somethings, is extraordinary to me. And the complexity of what that now brings in a retail landscape where retailers are trying to be very back to some degree of order and process and pragmatism raises a lot of issues for a retailer to say, wait a minute, where do I sell them now? Everywhere, of course. The other thing that probably, I guess, surprised me a little in nature isn't retail directly, but it does, it will relate to retail, which is the ways in which the food service industry evolved, both the ability of restaurants to be able to respond to a world in which they effectively turned into drive-throughs rather than sit-down places. But I think the degree of disruption that that's going to have on the food service industry, I do think is going to have a significant impact on the grocery industry. It's going to be way easier to get a wider variety of restaurant quality food to show up on your front door than it was pre-COVID. And that, I think, is going to impact how people will assess cooking at home and how that plays itself out. I think there's some interesting things in there which are as yet to be determined. That's interesting too, because I had Anne Fink, who runs food service for Pepsi, on a couple of 
podcasts ago. And talk about talk about some of the big brain. <laughs> yeah, and yes, exactly. Obviously, having come from the traditional retail side, previous to that, she had a very interesting lens on all of this and the speed at which they were able to think about food service. It was really extraordinary. And then the roles that the company is taking in developing new concepts, new ideas, new community support, all of these things, it just felt like a, a real, I hate this word because it was the word of the pandemic, aside from you're on mute, um, the pivot <laughs> that a company of that size had to deal with was fascinating. This idea of prepared food getting to people's homes and that becoming a very, very normal thing to do. That's got some implications for how stores are going to have to evolve. Yeah. Well, let's go there. How will stores evolve? We can certainly talk about lots of channels, but what about grocery? What are you seeing there? I think you've got a couple of interesting dynamics on the grocery side. One, I know for some reason, people seem to think that Instacart's going to go away and that the, the retailers aren't going to stand for having... Instacart solves a massive problem for most retailers. What Instacart did, in addition to being a really cool user interface to buy groceries on and outsourcing an operational problem that retailers hate, is they fixed a problem which retailers have really struggled with, which is how do I charge people that are willing to pay money for home delivery, but not charge other people. Retailers are actually not great at this tiering of payment, really, unless you're a membership retailer like Amazon or Costco and you charge a membership fee. But even for them, they're not tiering that. They basically charge it to everybody. Walmart's trying to do this with Walmart Plus, but this is just hard for retailers to build radically different value propositions for different segments of shoppers. So what Instacart did is they solved that problem for the retailer by saying, look, there are people that are willing to pay for an extra level of convenience, but you're going to struggle to monetize that. We'll do it. And we'll solve all the operational headaches for it as well. All this is a long-winded way of getting to the fact that you're going to have an enormous amount of e-commerce in the grocery space specifically that's all going to go through existing stores and is going to get bought off of existing shelves. And I think this is the part where e-commerce teams really need to understand that this notion of the endless shelf, which was always kind of silly because nobody wants an endless shelf, is ludicrous. Most American consumable e-commerce isn't going to be sold in an endless shelf environment. It's going to be picked by somebody that works for the retailer or Instacart off of a shelf that is needs to get stocked manually. And by the way, the item needs to get selected by a human buyer. So you're still going to need to do a lot of the stuff that you needed to do to get your item into a tier of items that are that are able to be assorted. I do think you'll see stores start to create environments where more of their square footage is dedicated to being the replenishment arm of the e-commerce offer, either through having dedicated sections where online shoppers can pick orders versus getting in the way of people shopping. So I think you'll have dedicated parts of the store that are somewhere between 10 and 20% of the square footage of the largest store will probably be dedicated to e-commerce in some way, shape, or form. That I think will be a shift. I do think for grocery stores, they are going to have to embrace this idea around what does their role look like in the food service world? Are they leasing capacity from restaurants that have gone out of business during COVID? Are they, are they building and opening kitchens that can act as centralized preparers of food for restaurants that may not be able to manage the extra capacity? I think partnerships will be huge for the retailers. I think there is an argument that the bigger the store, the more it's probably going to end up looking like a mall, just with smaller stores. I mean, Kohl's is probably the retailer that's done more of this than anybody, right? You know, you've got the Sephora's, you've got everything in there. I mean, Kohl's has been doing this for years. 
I think there's going to be more experiential retail. And it's like, sure, that's probably true. But most of the time for most of the products that are sold by most of the people we know, shoppers sometimes looking for an experience, but often the experience they want is to buy it really quickly and easily. And a lot of what retail theater is just gets in the way of that. But I think there will be selected categories in which experience is pretty meaningful. I think you'll have some space dedicated to that, sure. And clearly, there'll be more of a digital component to that. Yeah. And it is interesting because you do see that sort of fragmentation of, I've got all this stuff I just want to get off the list. And we've been seeing that for a long time. It's And particularly now through COVID, as people became more facile with e-commerce, what are the things I don't need to think about, whether it's a subscription model or not, I just don't want to think about them again. Paper towels, toilet paper, cleaning products, whatever it is, diapers, off the list. And then what am I going to do with the rest of my time? And there's this sense that, oh, now I'm going to run in and flump away through the, the aisles and spend all my time doing something when actually people are saying, no, no, thank you very much. Maybe in one category, maybe it is in beauty, maybe it is in shoes, maybe it is in pets, but actually I'm just going to take that time back and use it the way I want, not the way you want. So I think you're absolutely right. The other thing we're seeing is that incredible fragmentation. And it is about shoppers saying any way I want it, which we've heard for a thousand years, but now actually there are many more ways they can want it and get it. And I think about issues like that, the impact on supply chain of I'm selling my product in 53 different versions of one retailer or multiple retailers. And now it's not just about having tops and bottoms going together. Now it's actually having the right pack to go to the right place at the right time. So how do you make sense of all of that as you look across the retail landscape? So hold that thought before Brian and I continue on our very fast and furious chat. Just a reminder that we have much research on the subject of retail fragmentation, all available to you on our website at wslstrategicretail.com. We also have lots of examples of retailers from around the world who are creating new integrated business models and experimenting and testing their way through this new world. And there's lots more, of course. So take a look, but not before you hear the rest of my chat with Brian. I think supply chain is going to need a massive rethink. And look, I, right now, no one's got the time to rethink supply chain. They're just trying to get it to work. I joke about this a lot, but you know, I was with a group of medium-sized company CEOs uh, not that long ago, and we were talking about supply chain. I'm like, well, how much time are you guys spend in supply chain meetings? Like, I have 40, 50, 60% of my time. I'm like, why? What are you doing in there? Like, you're not helping the problem. You're not fixing anything. Your job isn't to fix supply chain now. Let the experts do that. Your job is to prevent this mess from ever happening again. And that's a harder job. But really thinking through the two big pieces for supply chain for me are one, yes, I think you're absolutely right, which is that your reselling environment is in all likelihood going to be more complex three to five years from now than it is today. In terms of the case pack configurations, the order quantities and all that stuff, I don't think there's much argument about that. How do you think through where and how you introduce complexity into your model in the most cost-effective way? And usually what that means is that you're going to have the capability to manage that variability closer to the end customer rather than further away, i.e. you're going to need packing or repacking facility somewhere within the continental United States. And then that changes everything that you would then think about your relationship with offshore sourcing, 
geopolitical risk. And at the very least, you need a scenario plan to be able to manage for geopolitical tension. I think there's a gravitational pull again here towards supply chains that are shorter, safer, and smaller. And then what does that mean for me as a brand in terms of how I need to think about what my positioning and what my value proposition is? So I think that supply chain will push a lot of thinking that brands need to do around this. And I think the other key element that's going to kick in and look, when oil is $122 a barrel, like I think it was this morning, there's no better time to think about sustainability in plastics than right now, because you've got a window of opportunity to be able to run cost models on less plastic intensive solutions for things that are going to look really good. Take advantage of it. Do that now. Because I think sustainability has to be a bigger part of how brands go to market because consumers are going to demand it. You've got a real window with the economics right now that I would take advantage of. Yeah, there's sort of unintended consequences, which is why I get the wet cement scenario. That opens an opportunity to think about issues that shoppers are telling us, you know, I really want, but you've got to do more. I can only do so much myself. I can only recycle how many plastic, you know, whatevers. So that opportunity. So when I think about opportunities in the coming year, two years, that sounds like it's one of them. Are there others in this sort of melee of how we're living at the moment that you see for both brands and retailers? There's never been more opportunity than right now because no one's achieved behavioral permanence in anything. As much as I would love to say that you and I will be producing content two years from now in which I am wearing sweatpants, that's probably not as likely as it is right this moment. As I said, if you thought you dressed better than me before... (laughs) I had you, no you, doubt. You, this was something we would, we would never have an argument about that one, Brian. That I knew. You've expanded your already formidable lead during COVID. But there's so many behaviors right now that people are amorphous about. That if you have an idea that required human beings to do something slightly differently than they've done it before, this is the once in a career opportunity you're going to have to shift how people behave. And that's the way I would look at where we are right now. Most consumers have more, most consumers that spend most of the money, particularly in the US, have more money than they used to because they've had two years of not spending money on lots of other things. They're going to go back to spending money on those other things at some point. You need to get in now and introduce the thing that you want them to spend money on that's different so that as that cement hardens back into something that resembles more unconscious habit, that you're there and you've placed it because this is it. This is your window. So I would say the opportunity is to establish behavior change in ways that would have been impossible to think about as a marketer three or four years ago. Yeah, that's really in many ways kind of an uplifting call to action to people. That's encouraging to me, (laughs) always the optimist. When you think about Who's the retailer you look at? Who's top of your list at the moment who you say gets it moving in the right direction? Great example of where the future is headed. I think pound for pound, Sephora has been the best retailer in the world for five or 10 years. And I, I think they still remain so. Why is that? Why do you think so? They just do a wide variety of things really well. They have some of the virtue of the Apple store in that they've made merchandising choices that allow their stores to generate an economic model that allows them to pay people fairly well, which allows them to keep and retain fairly good people in store. So, And that, at some basic level, is always the trick as a retailer, right? If you don't have an economic model that permits you to pay enough 
dollars of labor per square foot, basically, you're either going to end up with too few people or people not making a ton of money. And that's other things being equal going to generate higher turnover. So you need an economic model that can basically allow you to pay the right amount and type of labor. Sephora's got that because of the way that they, uh, the categories that they've chosen to sell in. And to be honest, they've got some pretty bad competition. That always helps. They do a great job of in-store merchandising. I think their upsell strategies are really clever, even just basic stuff. Like when you're in line on your, you're in the queue looking to get out of Sephora. Yeah, you don't have Snickers bars there. You have $25 little bottles of Hermos, right? Like, I mean, you could fundamentally change the economics of that transaction. They're really smart about how they use the rewards program. They're just, their stores always look really good. They do a nice job. Yeah. And certainly as areas of beauty evolve in terms of skincare and wellness integration and things like that, I have in my mind the Aldi's of this world. They just keep adding a layer of whether it's fresh or whether it's organic or whether it's, you know, all of those things in the neighborhood. No one ever thinks about Aldi and Costco as being similar, similar stores, but they're very similar business models. And they are within the context of what they do. They're kind of boring answers because they've been, I've been doing this for 26 years now and they've been the best retailers in the world at what they do since I started. The other retailer that I don't think gets enough credit is Best Buy. For degree of difficulty, what Best Buy's had to pull off over the years is astounding. <laughs> so, I mean, Best Buy's got Apple as a vigorous and direct competitor, which is really hard because they're really good. Best Buy's had digital transformation of the entirety of its store. Whereas grocery stores really haven't had that. Best Buy in the year 2000, 41% of their sales were physical music. I mean, like, just thinking about all the transformation they've gone through, I think they've done a really interesting job of always staying just far enough ahead of where stores are going. And I always tell people if you want to kind of think about where the future of retail is going, Best Buy is a good place to hang out just to see some of the decisions they make around how their stores look. Okay, well, from a shopper of Best Buy, I will disagree on experience, but I get the rest. We'll have that conversation separately because otherwise I'll weep in the middle of all of this. No, no, no. The problem they haven't solved for is the one I was talking about before, which is the, to be able to generate sufficient economics to get a labor model that really works. So as a result, execution for them is very inconsistent. But if you actually look at how the stores are designed, what they're supposed to do, it, there's some really clever thinking that's going into them. No, I don't disagree with that. So when you think about, you keep an eye on a lot of things, and I always think about leading indicators. I don't mean that in a really fancy way. I mean, where do you, I'll toss out my example first. I used to watch people on the subways in New York City, on the number one line, especially, I would watch people. I would watch what they're wearing. I would watch people start to read hardcover books again, how they're shopping online in the subway. What do you look at? What do you, is there something that you put your finger up in the, in the air and see how the wind's blowing? I think um, my dear friend and uh, old colleague, we basically traded to Australia for you, I think, in a complicated series of draft picks. But, but Phil Bonanno, the guy that I worked at MVI with for years, Phil and I would always refer to things like this as a glitch in the matrix. Where the second black cat shows up, you're like, wait, what was that? It's just things that just slightly get outside a pattern. And you're like, wait a second, that's odd. I do think you can learn a ton. And I'm actually preaching to God here on this, but you can learn a lot walking through stores, Wendy. I don't know if you knew that or not. So, really? Uh, that sounds like a business model. <laughs> Wendy, I know there's nothing you enjoy more than when I mansplain your life to you. So, um, <laughs> And you do a wonderful job of this and always have. But I do think that paying careful attention to, especially a category you're not as familiar with, and just going, what's going on here? 
I remember reforming my entire idea about how you could architect brand choice by spending 45 minutes during a chicken broth in Walmart at one point. And it's like, this is a, wait, what are they doing? Oh, I get it. And like, so I think physical stores are, are still a good place to go and, and kind of get a feel for that. I'm always just really curious to see. And especially now that I kind of, I'm a little bit more overtly in the advertising industry than I was in my previous life. I think observing how both I and other people invest their time and attention is a big one. My colleagues here at OMD on the media side have been talking a lot about using attention as a metric for advertising effectiveness. And I think that's really important. I would yell at the wind for like 10 years about why people weren't thinking more about gaming as a marketing platform because it was a massive consumer of human attention and because it didn't have a well-understood advertising model. I think that's usually where arbitrage is. It's usually where attention is high, but the marketing industry hasn't calibrated metrics so that advertisers can easily participate in it. I think that's where you see the most interesting ways in which people's understanding of the world is changing. So I think you can learn a lot from those ecosystems and uh, obligatory metaverse shout out. But I guess that's one of the reasons why the metaverse is attracting as much attention as it is right now. Though I think the accessory platforms to the metaverse, things like Snapchat, things like gaming, they're way more interesting than the metaverse at the moment because they're real and lots of people use them. Yeah, it is the bright, shiny thing, right? It's crypto, it's the metaverse. And then you see so many missing opportunities. There's still this assumption that gamers are all male and all people under 35, you know this. I mean, gamers are pretty equally gender distributed. So, you know, if I'm trying to reach 26-year-old women, gaming is a wonderful platform to do that, right? Nobody gets that. See, that's what I saw on the subway. I would watch people gaming and with their kids and I'd be like, what are they doing on this subway? <laughs> oh, thank heavens. We've got the Wi-Fi at 14th Street. We're good. It was my anyway. airplane test, like walking back from the bathroom to the seat on the airplane. And, uh, and you're, you're walking back and you just look down and see what people are doing on their phone. And it was just overwhelmingly candy crushed. Like, it's like, wow, okay, this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every age, every gender. So then last question. Are we still living in a world of wet cement? Absolutely. Yes. It's hard. The system one thinking we've all been engaged in for the last 24 months is tiring. And I think individuals are tired. But if you can rally the energy, really think through the behaviors you want to change and really think through how to reach people, you are never going to have a better opportunity to change the way people behave and what they do, how they think about your brand, how they use it what they're doing. You're never going to have a better opportunity than right now. This is it. I couldn't finish in a better way. You've encouraged me. You've inspired me as always. And actually I have a light bulb that needs changing. <laughs> Could you go? <laughs> oh, no. Isn't that terrible? That's a really sexist thing to say, but it's International Women's Week. So forget it. I'm saying it. whatever. Anytime you want to come over, there's always a light bulb to be changed. I will change light bulbs for food at any time. Oh, very good. Thank you so much for doing this. You're always a good sport. I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. Yes. Look forward to it as well, Wendy. Thank you for the invitation. Cheers. So here's the thing. Brian is right, as he actually often is, I hate to say. We do still live in a world of wet cement where the implications of the last two years are still not totally clear, not yet set. However, as we both agreed, it's never been more important or more opportunistic to look towards the future, to build scenarios, to create contingency plans, all through the lens of what shoppers want and where shoppers are headed. I call it plan A goes to plan B goes to plan C. As we always say at WSL, if you want to see the future, 
follow the shopper. And on that, I know Brian and I agree. So call us, email us, text us. If you want to see the future, we're your guide. See you there.